hello everybody and uh, welcome to the latest edition of the Pharmacy Today podcast. I'm delighted to be joined today by the Chief Executive Officer of Sandoz, Richard Sainol. Uh, and my name's Paul Bennett, I'm the uh, Chief Executive of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society and I also have a, a couple of colleagues here with me today. Uh, I'm joined by Professor Gino Martini, who's our Chief Scientist at the Royal Pharmaceutical Society and by Sarah Carhill, who's the Chief Pharmaceutical Officer's Clinical Fellow at the RPS. So Richard, uh, it's really great uh, to be able to talk with you and thank you so much for taking the time at what I know is an exceptionally busy period for the profession, for the pharmaceutical industry, as we are as we speak uh, in the middle of this battle against COVID-19. Um, I, I wonder if we could start uh, really by asking you to introduce yourself uh, to our members and perhaps give a, a little flavour of your educational background and your career pathway to being the Chief Executive at Sandoz. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. Um, yeah, so I, I, when I qualified from Bradford, too many years to recall, but 1990, so I've been pharmacist all of those years. Um, my career, I guess I was in retail for a little while, considered a career in the army, um, and then ended up working in the industry. I think my first job was with GD Searle, which uh, I think a company that got acquired many years ago um, in sales and marketing, and then moved to a number of companies along the way, um, in sort of mainly in commercial roles. Um, I spent a bit of time with Roche in a sort of a more manufacturing role, then ended up um, becoming CEO of then a company called GUK, which in that I think is now being acquired by another global generics company. Ended up running Western Europe for them, and then originally joined Sandoz now what nearly 15 years ago uh, to run their emerging markets business, which was basically the Asia, Latin America, Middle East, and Canada. Bizarrely, um, did that for about four or five years. Ended up living in Asia. Um, left them to set up and run. The mature businesses for GSK, which was a large chunk of businesses, and I did that living in Asia, um, and then really got this opportunity to come back to Sandoz, which was a, a bit of a surprise, um, and then joined them what eight nine months ago, um, really to, to to come back to Sandoz and, and run the business globally, which to me is I guess a dream job, um, an opportunity that is an incredibly exciting one and uh, an incredibly privileged and rewarding role. That's really fascinating, Richard, and um, I, I'm sure our listeners um, will will be somewhat in awe to to hear of your uh, your rise through uh, your profession and the, and the industry. I, I wonder if if we focus a little now uh, on Sandoz it, itself, maybe you could talk to us a little bit about the history uh, of Sandoz and, and maybe some of the important milestones in medicines development. Perhaps there's something around the the number of employees and the locations. Yeah, sure. So, um, so I guess I mean Sandoz. It, the original Sandoz name actually is is very very old, over a hundred years old. But I guess Sandoz, as we know it or think about it, really formed back in 1996 with the merger. Um, of Siba Gaigi, um, as and ultimately Novartis got formed, um, and then grew out of that. And then in uh, early 2000s, Novartis decided it really wanted to amalgamate all its generic businesses under one brand and chose the Sandoz brand to do that. And that covered a whole bunch of companies, um, the old Biochemie business, which was an antibi antibiotics manufacturer um, based in Austria um, that had been manufacturing antibiotics actually since the war. Um, and was a leader in fermentation technology. 
And then in 2005, they acquired the Hexal business, which is a, a European stroke global generics business based out of Munich um, and integrated that. And then there's been a number of other acquisitions along the way. Um, and then we were one of the first companies to launch. In fact, we were the first company to launch a biosimilar in Japan. Um, in fact, I was involved in that process. Um, and then launched subsequently biologics globally. Um, today, um, as, as part of the organization, about 12,000 people before excluding manufacturing. So it's quite a significant organization. Um, we're present in over 100 markets and are one of the largest generic companies in the world. So um, it's grown to be a very large and dynamic business. So that's given us a real uh, insight into the, the market presence of, of Sandals. You, you touched there on uh, biosimilars uh, and um, biologics. I wonder if you could just say maybe a little bit more about those. Sure. Um, so globally, Sandals is probably one of the top one or two generic companies in Europe. We're the largest generic company and we treat more patients than any other pharmaceutical company. Um, we have over a thousand molecules in our pipeline um, and, or in our portfolio. Um, and last year, I think we reached over 500 million patients. Um, I think, as you said, we're a, a pioneer in biosimilars and one of the largest biosimilar manufacturers globally. I think in Europe alone, we have over eight marketed biosimilars. Um, we're also a leader player in, in branded generics. We have OTC businesses in quite a few of our markets. Um, and our ambition is to become the most valued generics company in the world um, and really focusing and being the first to market with, with, with generic products and building sustainable supply in our markets um, that and continue to grow from that basis. Thank you, Richard. Um, I, I'm just reflecting on what you were saying earlier on. In many ways, it's a it's a small world. We're we're both pharmacy graduates from Bradford University, um, but at the moment there is a global challenge uh, taking place, and that is the fight against COVID nineteen. I, I wonder if you could talk a little about your company's response to that challenge. Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, clearly, it's something that's affecting all of us. Um, First and foremost, we know we have a huge responsibility to ensure supply of, of pharmaceuticals, and particularly given our, our scale and depth and breadth of supply across Europe, you know, we have a massive responsibility. Um, so first and foremost, we're ensuring that we're managing our supply. Um, we also made a commitment that we wouldn't put prices up or look at trying to create additional value because of increased demand, particularly in products which are going to be used directly or indirectly for um, corona patients or COVID patients. Um, and we've made that announcement globally. We've also then now continued to support um, a number of initiatives and studies. So I know hydroxychloroquine has been discussed in quite a few contexts. Now, clearly, this drug is not yet indicated or approved for the treatment of COVID, but there are a number of trials ongoing. So we're, we've actively worked with our colleagues um, to bring product and donate it to a number of markets already across Europe. In fact, we just got approval today from the Swiss authorities um, granting us um, an, an approval. Literally, that took four days from when we shipped that out of the US. Um, so we've been working very closely with regulators and governments to bring products to patients as quickly as possible and then support a number of clinical trials globally um, to really help understand if this is a drug that can genuinely support COVID patients or not. Um, so we're trying to take a lot of actions. Clearly, you know, we're building up inventory, something like core drugs like anti-infectives, and really making sure that as far as possible, we're supporting the supply chains, given the very unusual demands being placed on them at the moment. 
Thank you, Richard. That, that's given us also, I think, a sense of the pace at which everything is is moving and how industry is is responding to to that. I wonder if you could talk a bit about how uh, organisationally Sandoz uh, has responded in terms of um, looking after staff, uh, the social distancing aspects of of requiring people to work from home. How has how has that impacted you, particularly operationally? Um, I guess we've got several groups of staff. I mean, a lot of the staff. Um, are now working from home um, and actually from the management and sort of the organizational piece it's a little disruptive but it's not that different to day-to-day to -day work we also have large sales organizations and so the majority of those are no longer clearly calling on customers anymore but then we're looking at helping using them to help build educational programs and support programs to physicians and pharmacists in the markets that we operate um, I'm also very aware that you know a lot of our associates have no choice to go to work, they work in, in factories or the laboratories in terms of clinical trials and, and analytics. So we're doing our best to support them to allow a supply to continue and our development programs to continue. And I'm also conscious there's a lot of workers that we don't talk about, you know, whether it's the, you know, the staff in the canteen or, or the cleaners. Um, so we're making sure that they're all supported. You know, we've not made any people redundant. We've not furloughed anybody we're very keen to support all our associates whether they're they're running the companies or supporting their companies um, and really trying to take a much more holistic view to taking care of our people uh, and I, I would uh, estimate you, you'd have a fair number of uh, clinically qualified staff in in your employment Richard have you had a, a call from them about going uh, as it were back to the front line uh, at this time the sort of the volunteering to to support how, how are you managing to, to balance perhaps those uh, calls against the needs of, of your own business we do I mean clearly it, it, it's, it's very difficult to take a, a global view because every market operates slightly differently and every government operates differently um, so it's really ultimately it's got to be down to individual associates that they feel that that's what something that they want to do then clearly we wouldn't stop them doing that um, and equally, we've done a number of things. So some of our labs in Germany, we're working with the German authorities to allow them to use or have access to our resources to get quicker testing. Um, so really, it, it tends to be market by market because clearly that's how this 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 has evolved. Um, and that's the, the approach that we've taken. Thanks, Richard. Um, last question from, from me before I hand over to, uh, to to Gino, our chief scientist, But um, and that's around the supply and the continuity of supply of, of medicines. Um, we, we're hearing, um, certainly here in, in Great Britain, but, but also across the world, that uh, this COVID uh, crisis or situation is, is causing great demand. How are you managing to, to stay on top of that? Um, well, certainly by staying close to the demand patterns and working closely with our customers and governments to understand that. Um, it is very, very complicated and certainly some products you, you would see significant increases in demand, particularly things say, for example, paracetamol. Um, and trying to understand the supply chain and then get more API from whatever route. And we were fairly fortunate that we carry really quite high inventories of a lot of the raw materials. So in the short to medium term, we've, we've pretty much covered in terms of normal supply and we've been able to respond to the bulk of the requests from the individual markets. Um, and I know that the supply team have done a fantastic job really continuing to ramp that up and, and build the resourcing around that. But ultimately, it's about understanding those demands and talking to people. Um, 
and having a realistic expectation in terms of what can be delivered when and how um, and a realistic understanding of demand. Richard, thanks very much. I really do appreciate uh, the response to those questions. I I'm going to hand over now to, to Gino, um, who's got a few more for you. Uh, thank you, Paul. And, and Richard, uh, hello again. Um, hello. It's been a long time since we last last spoken. I think about eight years. Um, Richard, so um, obviously with 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 COVID uh, or coronavirus, one of the big issues is that there's no treatment, there's no cure. Uh, the treatment really is just supportive care. You either respond or you don't. So clearly, the pharmaceutical industry is going to is going to really determine whether we can find a cure or not. What I think quite surprising, and I think the question I want to ask you is. Did you ever think farm companies would work in such a collaborative way, a coordinated way to try and find a response to the COVID-19 pandemic? What's your views? Um, I, I guess I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm actually positively encouraged. Um, I mean, this is such a humanitarian, humanitarian crisis and it affects everybody, whether you're you know, rich or poor, um, whatever nation. So I, I think it, as an industry, at, you know, I think it, it's good that we're seeing that. To be fair, when I think originally I, I sort of reflect back on things like the H1N1 crisis and before that the HIV crisis. Um, you know, in, certainly in HIV now, to the point that actually, you know, the drugs and the development behind that have reached a point where some patients now we can't even detect the viral load. So very, very effectively. So I think I'm encouraged by that. I guess the pace of it has been quite interesting. So clearly, I think the science has moved on a lot, um, and I think there's a real energy around the collaboration. And I know my colleagues in uh, NIVA, um, the development group within Novartis are connecting on all sorts of levels with different companies to try and help support them or, or bring science to, to bring products to the market or potential therapies to patients. So, you know, I'm confident that uh, as an industry, it'll rise to the challenge. And I know an awful lot is happening very quickly. Um, as a generic company, I guess, ultimately, our portfolio is, is more defined in terms of to clinical development, but there clearly there are drugs that may be effective and we're supporting those trials to make sure that we make decisions based on data rather than a hunch or a subjective feeling. So, um, and that's really where we're putting our resource now. Okay, good, thank you. Um, the, my next question really was prompted to, or stimulated by a text I received from a community pharmacist, an old friend of mine. He said, you know, when will we find a vaccine for this, for this virus? And, and so it's been suggested, Richard, it could take about 18 months to find a vaccine for COVID-19. Do you think this is the case? What, what have you heard on the radar screen? What have you heard in the on the chatter at, at your level? Um, I guess, well, I'm, A, I'm, I'm, the Sandals is not a vaccines company, and Novartis divested its vaccine business um, mm -hmm. a few years ago. So I guess it's a space that we're less involved in. Um, I mean, clearly, like a lot of your listeners, you know, read the scientific papers, and clearly, there's been some quite significant process, progress in terms of fact vaccine platforms. So I would hope um, it wouldn't be 18 months, um, but that's not really based on me being involved in any of those major projects. So, I mean, I think certainly from my understanding, with hopefully within a year, we should start seeing product to market. I mean, already I know there's this, this trials ongoing. We've got drug into patients, which in two months is truly remarkable. Um, so I hope those trials play out and uh, clearly brings a product and, and an effective vaccine to the marketplace as quickly as possible. Okay, thank you. Um, so there's been a big emphasis on repurposing old drugs, uh, what we call off-pattern drugs, to target the coronavirus. So we mentioned uh, chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine. 
And, and you also mentioned you've got about a thousand molecules in your portfolio. Do you think Sandos have, have any other medicines in your inventory that could be applied to help treat COVID-19? It's a good question. I mean, ultimately, you know, a lot of these trials are now being taking place in hospitals with patients and we're working with those physicians. I mean, um, there's a number of drugs that have been discussed, whether you know, things like azithromycin in conjunction with hydro, hydroxychloroquine, a number of antiretrovirals. Um, you know, so almost every day we see something else. Again, we're taking, we're trying to do this on a fact-based approach. So clearly, if there's clinical trials, we'll happily support those um, and look at how we can find ways to manage the supply chain because that's really our our core skill um, and find ways to respond to that. And as you said. Um, at the moment, it's making sure that medicines like anti-infectives, respiratory drugs, analgesics um, are available to patients um, when they need them and to hospitals and governments um, in the current environment. Okay. So, I mean, and have you seen um, in your dialogue or with, with the regulatory agencies, uh, have they been quite willing to change their flexibility to make it easier to fast track uh, these development programs, the clinical trials? Absolutely. I mean, I think the example I gave a little bit earlier on, I mean, we, we started talking to the Swiss authorities um, middle of last week and we got our approval today. So effectively within four days, we've got a, a, an approval for <coughs> use of you know, hydroxychloroquine in Switzerland. So, um, and we're seeing similar paths across some of the European regulators. So I think clearly they are keen to find solutions and pathways. We've been working extremely closely with the European regulatory authorities um, and other regulatory, sorry, other authorities outside Europe as well. Uh, Richard, you, you obviously you were talking about number of clinical trials or uh, programs you've been developing. Um, obviously, you, you, you may well be collaborating with a number of research institutes. Are, are there any that you can want, you want to share? Give more detail. Yeah, I mean, there's quite a few. I mean, I mean, probably some of the better known ones. We're working closely with the Gates Foundation. Um, who are conducting a number of trials. We're supporting that and donating product. Um, but we've got trials now in a number of places looking at, um, at the effectiveness of particularly HCQ, either on its own or in combination at various stages um, of the disease. Okay, and HCQ, you mean hydroxychloroquine, Hydroxy. yes? Yes. Yeah, okay, cool. So uh, I, I've answered my I've, I've sort of my questions. I'll now hand over to Sarah Cahill, who will ask you the next question. Sarah? Hi, so uh, my question is, do you think that the COVID-19 pandemic will change the way that you provide access to medicines to patients? Um, for example, will there be more overlap with Novartis, your innovative parent company? That's a great question. I mean, who knows? I mean, I, I think you, there are some trends that you're seeing around access. Um, and I guess for me, a lot of the access discussions tend to be around biologics. Um, so to give you a good example, so Europe actually, I think, has done a fantastic job with its regulatory framework, bringing products to the market and allowing much more open access for things like biosimilars. And what we're seeing in that space is more patients are getting treated, healthcare budgets are saving you know, billions of dollars. Uh, and I, I really see a step change in the acceptance and use of biosimilars in a European context. When you contrast that to other countries, so the US, um, and the US at the moment has something like 25 biologics approved, yet only 10 marketed. So you know, the landscape there is very different. Um, but again, it, access still applies. Um, there's significant numbers of patients in countries like the US who surprisingly can't afford healthcare, can't afford drug therapies, um, partly because of how drugs and, and healthcare is uh, reimbursed there. 
So there's huge opportunities there, as well as, I guess, some of the obvious cases in some of the emerging markets and poorer nations where uh, we think of access in the classic sense. But ultimately, to me, it's about how do we bring products to the market as quickly as possible um, and price them at a price point that allows patients to use them in a way they perhaps couldn't have considered them before. And particularly, as I say, biosimilars to me are, are the most exciting area given the large number of products currently on the market. I just wanted to say a really big thank you. Um, I, we do recognise what a massive challenge um, your industry is facing at the moment and, and indeed the whole world in this response to the COVID-19 uh, crisis that we are confronting. Um, it's really been fascinating to hear how you uh, are leading your teams in the response to that and, uh, and we are clearly all going to be very dependent upon uh, we hope treat effective treatment at some point in the future for COVID-19, but working together and collaboratively across pharmaceutical industry, across academia, science more broadly, across the pharmacy professions and the practitioners that are at the forefront fighting this challenge day in and day out. I, I hope they'll find today's uh, session really, really interesting and informative as I have. Thank you so much again, Richard, for sparing the time to be with us today. Yeah. Absolute pleasure and uh, please take, stay safe and uh, take care.